going to invite you to remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We're going to do the reading a little different this morning. We're going to read Psalm 136. I'm going to read the first lines, and you're going to read the response. For his love, his steadfast love endures forever. Two things. Listen to the part that I'm reading because it tells a story that ties in not only from last week, but this week that Pastor Tony is going to be speaking from. And secondly, I encourage you not to say those lines as, oh, I've got to say it again, because you're going to say it a few times. But as listening to the grace and the mercy of God, let that statement, there's a reason why God wrote it over and over again. So as we, sometimes we hear something and it doesn't click, right? But the more we say it and the more we hear it, the more we realize, oh, this is true. And it starts moving to our heart. So the parts that say for his love, steadfast love endures forever, that is your part. And I'll read the other parts. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. And give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him alone who does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and stars to rule over the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. And brought Israel out from among them. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. And made Israel pass through the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down great kings. And killed mighty kings. Sion, king of the Amorites. And Og, the king of Bashan. And gave their land as a heritage. A heritage to Israel, his servant. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. And rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven. For his steadfast love endures forever. Amen and amen. This is the reading of the word. You may be seated. So last week we started looking at God's covenantal faithfulness and how he walks with his people and how he is there for his people. And we started with Genesis and Adam and we looked at how God 
started off with this covenant of works. And, you know, he, he's created Adam and Eve and he says, hey, I placed you in this perfect place and I want you to enjoy all that I've given you. And, and we see the sin come into the world because Adam and Eve fall away from God's plan. They, they disobey. And, and then God is still faithful in the fact that he says, hey, you knew that when this happened, death comes into the world, but his judgment isn't final in that moment. Uh, there is death that has come into the world. Sin has come into the world, and yet he is being patient. He's being long-suffering because he has a plan on how he wants to walk with his people, care for his people, save his people. And then the, the storyline continues to build, and he, he brings Abraham out and says, hey, I'm going to make you into this great nation, and I'm going to be your God, and you will be my people, and I will bless you so that you will be more than the stars in the sky, and as one of my brothers pointed out to me, more than the dust of the earth. Like, this amazing view, you know, vision of, like, my family's going to be huge, and God is patiently working with his people. And then we see them go into Egypt. Um, and they go in successfully because Joseph, one of God's people, has become the second in charge. And so they go in and they're treated well at the beginning, but years go on, generations go on, and then uh, Joseph is forgotten. Israel is just seen as this big number of people, and Pharaoh uh, starts kind of going after them, attacking them, as Satan goes after God's people. And so like we see a real satanic image played out in Pharaoh. And yet God is merciful. He hears the cries of his people and he sends Moses to go and lead them out. And we see God working on their behalf. And we've, we've got the storyline all the way here to, or yeah, to Exodus chapter 32, where they got to Mount Sinai and God has said, hey, I'm going to make marriage vows with you. We're going to make a covenant together. We are going to be connected intimately in a bond. I will be your God, you will be my people. And the people have all said, yes, we will do that. And so they've made their covenant. God spoke to them vocally. 70 of their elders saw God and Aaron is leading the people and Moses goes up on the mountain and then the people reject God. They, they break the covenant, they turn from him. And, and that's where we left off in the story yet last week is that the people have abandoned God, and yet God, in his great goodness, kindness, and mercy, is not going to deal with them like their sins deserve. He speaks as if he's going to deal with them in that way, and yet he doesn't. Now listen, here's the thing you got to know. God is making himself known to the world in a great and powerful way. He's making himself known to his people in a very intimate way. And he's reintroducing himself. And so as he's doing this, as we read the storyline here in Exodus, we need to read it with this understanding of, hey, God is showing us his character. He's showing us how he's going to love his people. And even though he is like ready to destroy them, he doesn't. He, he was holds. And he tells Moses, hey, let me, let me introduce myself to you again. Let me share with you who I am again. And that's where we want to pick up today in Exodus chapter 34. Again, we're looking at verses 5 to 10, but we're going to go right specifically to verse 6 and 7. It says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, 
forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. We talked about how, remember, God has a special name, covenantal name, and it was considered holy by Israel. They wouldn't even speak it. They would say Adonai instead. And in today's you know, books, we'll read Jehovah at time, or it's all capitalized as Lord. And he uses his name twice, the Lord, the Lord. And it's there to remind them, hey, listen, in case you forgot who is in charge or who is in control, remember this truth. I am God. You are not. You don't get to make like the terms on how this relationship works. I come and I present the terms because I'm the one who created all things. I'm the one who's in control of all things. I am the one who knows best how all things should work. So you need to listen to me. But as I tell you that, I'm going to come with words of comfort for your soul. Right? Because I'm not coming in and telling you like, oh, well, if you do this, I'm annihilating you. He comes in and says, no, I am a God who is merciful. Right? I am like a mother who's carrying a child in her womb, and I'm going to protect that child. I'm going to make sure that child has everything that it needs. I'm going to walk with you as my people. And God shows that he has done that faithfully, bringing them out of slavery. Right? And then he says, not only am I this mom who's compassionate with you, I am gracious. I am favoring you. And so, like, I go above and beyond how I will bless you as parents will often do for their kids. They will love them and extend lavish things on them. And so as Israel leaves Egypt, they don't leave empty-handed. They leave with gold and silver, and they are giving all this kind of stuff. And then as they're walking through the wilderness, God is providing the food for them, the water for them. He is making sure they are taken care of as they go forward. He says, I am a God who is slow to anger. Praise God, our God is slow to anger. Right? Parents, like, we pray, God, just help me today be slow to anger with my kid, don't we? Like, just help me to show them the patience and the love that God has shown to me. Why? Because it is a great gift when you screw things up and when you make a mistake to know that that person that you are, like, intimately connected to isn't going to bite your head off, isn't going to come after you in a harsh and judgmental way. Right? That is the goodness of our God. He says, I am very slow in this process and I am being patient. Why is he being patient? Like, why doesn't God just judge the nations when like that is just outright evil that's going on? And he's being patient because in this minuscule moment that we see this outright evil, God is looking at this eternal perspective of souls and God realizes like, hey, if I go and destroy right now, that soul is damned, damned for eternity. How would you want me to handle that if you were my child? That is the wrestle that's going on inside of our God. He is good. He is faithful. He is just. He is holy. <clears throat> our God is not only slow to anger, but he is abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands. He hears our cries. He knows our weaknesses. And he comes along like a mom or a dad to bind us up, to help us, to come with us, and to continually encourage us on with his love. He is faithful. And this idea of faithfulness 
is steadiness, reliability, trustworthiness. God is faithful. He is our rock. It is that idea of like, hey, when I walk, I'm walking on something solid. I'm not feeling like I'm in sand where I'm squishing around or I'm tilting or teetering. I know the ground beneath me is good because my God is who I'm walking on. That is what I'm saying when I'm trusting my God's faithfulness. His faithfulness is one that also then says, I will keep my word. If I have told you something I will do, I will do it. I will fulfill all my promises. You can trust me. Like, praise God. He is the only one that we know we can trust. This is why it's so important that we know God's word. Because through it, we then know like, oh, yes, my God is going to fulfill his promise. He will not treat me this way. He will not be quick to anger with me. He is going to be merciful. He is going to be gracious. He is going to show steadfast love to me because I'm his child. That gives my heart and soul great comfort, great joy. And so we see that he is being faithful to his people. In fact, God's word says that Jesus Christ is the answer to all of God's promises. He is the yes and the amen. And when our brother cries out amen in this church, people, that means that's truth, right? It is something that we all should do. It is something that when your soul inside of you is like, Yep, I agree with that, right? That is a moment to say amen. And it's okay to say it out loud, right? It's amen, there we go, see? It's okay to speak the truth of what our God is. We are called to be witnesses. I had a great conversation with another brother this week and how we are called to be witnesses of our God. What does that mean? It means I am supposed to be looking around, seeing what's going on in the world and declaring, oh, there's my God. That is what he does. He cares for the weak. He is merciful to those who are in need. He is graciously providing for his people. He is faithful. Amen. Right? And so that's what we are supposed to do. When Jason says, hey, let's give a clap offering to the Lord, that's biblical. Right? That's in the book of Psalms. And so like in service, it's okay every now and then to say, I am overwhelmed by the amaze of God. It's well worth my time to say, Praise God. Amen. I'm going to give him a clap off. Like, why don't you just join me? Just clap for our Lord. Because that is how good our God is. He is a God of covenant. Now, we're doing a little bit of biblical theology here. <clears throat> Last week we did God of covenant. You were very merciful to me. And I'm very gracious for the way that you guys treated me as I was working my way through that one. Uh, this week we are moving and switching gears. Okay, same passage, <clears throat> we're switching gears, and I'm going to ask for grace in this way. The word that I'm going to use, that our God is a God of holiness, is not directly in the text. It is implied. I'm going to show you how it's implied. So I'm going to define holiness, I'm going to show you how it's implied in the text, I'm going to show you in other ways how you'll see God's character shown in the book of Leviticus, because I was hoping to get into the book of Leviticus with you, but that would just be crazy. So we're just going to like take it one step at a time here and try to finish this couple verses that we're in. But our God is a God of holiness. And this is a biblical theme. It's a theological theme that, again, just like a gym cutter is finding those little lines that he's going to cut across. This is one that you want to cut across. You want to understand this truth of our God because it helps you to know him. And remember, the whole goal of these two messages is that we would know our God. 
Because through knowing how big and awesome and great he is, how merciful and gracious, it should lead us to love him more. Should cause our hearts to like, oh, I love my God. My God is so good, I will walk with my God. And then not only will I walk with my God, but I will serve him. I want to go and do the work of the Lord. I want to go and give him his name glory and give his name praise. So we're going into this idea of holiness, right? And the idea here of holy, let's just start first and foremost, is not moral purity. The idea of holy is set apart. That God is unique. The idea here is he is so high above us, he is so otherworldly than us, that he and he alone is holy. Like he is something that should be worshipped, should be magnified. That's why in the book of Revelation you see these pictures that are these amazing like ideas of angelic beings that are gathered around the throne and they are just worshipping God constantly saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? John Walters, um, we're sitting in staff meeting, we're talking about this, and then he blows my mind. He says, they don't stop. They just keep saying that over and over, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Like, none of them get tired of it. Because there must be new things that continually be revealed to them of how great our God is. Like, he is so infinite in his amazement, that there must be new thoughts and new ideas and new things that they see that just lead them over and over and over again to cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There's nothing else like him. There's nothing else. He is unique. He is special. He is worthy of all of our praise. So that is what holiness is, right? And so this idea of holiness, the the best idea we can get to it Um, within our world is probably the sun. Like in our universe, the sun is a unique thing within our universe right here, within our solar system. So yeah, not universe, solar system. How many stars are in our solar system? One. Okay, just one, the sun. We have the sun, that's it. All right, there's a lot of stars out there, but we have one. Okay, and, and the rest of our solar system works in orbit around that one, right? And this is a powerful, powerful thing, the sun. Like, it is what for us as a globe, as a planet, allows us life, allows us warmth, right? It allows things to grow. And so it's an amazing gift from God that we have this thing. It keeps us in orbit. It does all kinds of works for us. And yet, if you were to go and get near it, it doesn't change. Its power is is still the same. Its goodness is still the same. But you are in danger of being annihilated or being like burnt up because you've gotten too close to something of great power. And and this idea of holiness is kind of that way, as as we're going to learn. Like with God, it is an awesome thing to walk into the presence of God. Nobody goes in there cavalier. Nobody goes in front of the presence of God and just thinks like, oh, hey, what's up, dad? No. Like, you don't. He's our father. But you will not. Like, look through all the scripture. Anytime anyone gets near angelic beings who just have the holiness of God on them, they fall on their faces and they fear that they're going to die. They're afraid that their sin is about to be judged. 
and they are about to be then penalized for all of eternity. That's how this holiness is. So that's the real definition of holiness. The second definition that does come with it is the idea of moral purity. And so our God is going to work with us because he's, he says, hey, I want to be near you. I want you to be near me, especially here in this book in Exodus. He's like, but to do that, like there are some purity laws that are going to have to get put in place. Some moral purity laws, some ritual purity laws. There is a great um, video done by a group called the Bible Project. So the BibleProject.com has a great video. If you watch on the book of Leviticus, it will, it will really help like, open up that book to you so that you understand, oh, this is what all this crazy stuff is about. This is why these laws are in place. Because God is distinguishing things between life and death. Things that are holy are things that are promoting life. Things that are impure or unholy are things that are showing death. If there's something that has connection to death, that's why it's going to get labeled impure and holy. Not all of it's sinful, but God is showing, hey, listen, because sin has come into the world, death has come into the world, we have to now deal with it. And so that's the definition there of holy. Um, Moses in Exodus 19, verses 5 to 6 is told, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God has told Israel, hey, listen, if you will walk into covenant with me, I am going to make you a kingdom of priests. I'm going to make you a holy nation. So now I want you to become holy as your God is holy. I want you to do this. And God gives specific instructions to Moses right after this passage here in Exodus 34 on how to build a house of worship for God. He gives them specific instructions because he's like saying, hey, listen, I'm about to bring my holiness, my glory down and to live amongst you as a group of people. And and we've got to be careful here because if we don't do this right, if we don't do this well, then you guys are in trouble because I don't change. I'm God. Never tell a lie, never change. But here's what it is. My power, my glory, it cannot put up with just cavalier sinfulness or people that are just rebelling. And so when that happens, just understand you are asking for me to have to bring a justice and a judgment in those moments. And even though I'm merciful and gracious and slow to anger, like there is still an accounting that has to take place. And so you've got to be careful. And so remember the sun has the orbit of the planets. God sets this thing up that, hey, I'm going to put my temple or my tabernacle in the middle of your people. In that tabernacle, in the very middle, is the Holy of Holies, a place where I will sit on the mercy seat of God. That place, you can only come into it once a year because this thing is like you have to guard this thing. And the priest that's coming there, he's got to go through a bunch of rituals to make sure that he is pure and righteous before God. And he's also going to lead the people because he's fearful for not only his life, but he's fearful because of the lives of the people. Hey, what have you guys done that might put my life in jeopardy, right? And then there's a holy place outside of the Holy of Holies that the people will go in and offer burnt offerings and sacrifice to the Lord. 
And then outside of that, then you have the place where they offer the sacrifices for sin offerings and things. And then the Levites and the priests encircle this tabernacle. Because they're, again, they're, like, they're creating these sphere rings of protection to guard Israel from the Holy Spirit. And then you have Israel as a people who are supposed to be God's people. And then you have the world. The world has been welcomed to come be a part of this if, again, they will come to God on his terms. So this is how God is now setting up this holiness ring around him. <clears throat> and if you ever read the book of Leviticus, you'll start seeing like how all these purification laws get put into play and why they're of importance. So now, let me give you an illustration and a show and tell real quick. <clears throat> I told you that if you go to the Holy of Holies, you're only allowed to go in once a year. And I had Sherry Slavin build me this great outfit that has the high priest outfit. And on it, it says, <clears throat> holy to the Lord. Like the priest would have to wear that on its head. He would carry on him an ephod that had all the stones, one representing each tribe of Israel. And then he would wear this, right? Could you imagine if you walked all day in this guy, right? But the reason he had to wear this was because he was going in to holy places. And if they stopped hearing this, there was a rope tied around his ankle because they were afraid, hey, this guy's dead. Because sin has gotten into the camp or sin has gotten into this guy's life. And this is how serious this was. And so this was something that Israel as a nation started understanding and yet quickly forgets, right? We see this story played out a little bit better in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah being a prophet of God, Isaiah is ushered up into the heavenly realms. And in a vision, he sees the throne room of God. And he's looking around and he sees the seraphim that have covered their faces and covered their feet and are flying around. And he realizes where he's at and he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Because he hears the seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So he knows where he's at. And he realizes, I am in trouble because I am a sinful person. I've, I've not gone through the purification. And even in that case, like I'm in a new place altogether. I am about to face judgment. And when he says, woe is me, the term woe in here is like, not just like a, ooh, hold up. This is like, I am in deep trouble. Damned is the mindset here. Like there's a deep, <clears throat> let me see if I can grab it real quick here. There is an impending doom, a condemnation, and a fear that they are about to face the wrath of God. And you read in the New Testament, Jesus will tell the Pharisees and the Sadducees, woe to you Pharisees, and woe to you Sadducees. My kids used to get the greatest kick out of that because they're like, oh, this word, whoa, whoa. And it's like, no, you don't understand. Like that word, you don't throw around. Like that is a word of serious consequence. And so when Jesus was saying it to them, that was his final warning to them. You need to repent you need to turn from your stiff neck hard-heartedness 
and you need to now seek the Lord who is merciful and gracious, who's been slow to anger with you, who's abounding in steadfast love and abounding in faithfulness. <clears throat> and the reason we got to understand this term holiness is because this term is what is then driving the next section of Exodus 34. Okay? Because in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, we've, we've come to that, hey, our God is merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He is abounding in faithfulness. He forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sins. Why does he need to forgive them? If he's merciful and gracious, why can't he just sweep them under the rug or let it go? It's because he's holy. And his holiness says, no, there has to be an account for those disobedient wrongdoings. You can't just sweep this under the rug. Somebody has to atone for that or pay for that, or it has to be judged. If you're not going to pay for it, then it has to be judged because that is my character. And so this brings us to our next section here in Exodus 34, that God is a forgiving God, forgiving their iniquities, their transgressions, and their sins. And he's doing this to show them because, hey, listen, if you don't get this right and I come into your camp, you're in big trouble. And so you need to understand who I am, what's my character, but also how merciful I am going to be to you. So he gives them these three terms for disobedience, iniquity. <clears throat> and let me, you know, before I get to that, forgiveness. What is forgiveness? Um, forgiveness is this idea of releasing or letting go. It doesn't mean you forget, but it does mean you've let it go. So it's like a, a debt that's been owed to somebody, a financial burden, and the other person has said, I'm letting it go and I'm not gonna hold that against you. They may still remember what happened, but yet they've said, I'm not penalizing you for that. I've let it go. Or releasing it. Think of a burden on someone's back. Think of a kid carrying these backpacks with all the books in them, right? And then they get home and they're almost falling over and then they release that backpack. They let it off and it drops to the ground. That's the idea of forgiveness, is that God has released you of your sin, the burden that was on your back, like Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress. He's released it. He has freed you. He has then also said, you owe me nothing. All right? Matthew 18 has the great parable of the unmerciful servant, a guy who was forgiven this enormous amount of money that he would have never been able to pay back. And the king says to him, hey, I'm going to forgive you of that debt. <clears throat> you owe it to me no more. I'm letting it go. Right? And that person not accepting the king's forgiveness. Instead, going out and thinking like, well, I've got myself a little bit more time. I've bought myself a little bit. I can now make it up to the king. Right? Here's the thing. You can never make it up. And this idea of forgiveness, you have to just accept what God has given you. And by faith, you then walk forward and trust my God said it's forgiven. I trust his word. Why? Because he is faithful. And his word, his promises always come true. And so if he tells me that it's done, I can trust that it's done. I don't have to sit there and worry about it or hold on to it. 
<clears throat> so iniquity, what is iniquity that he's going to forgive us for? The idea of iniquity here is this idea of being crooked or twisted or bent. And the idea is that <clears throat> because you have disobeyed God's law, you've disobeyed his standard, you have bent yourself, you have twisted the world, you have corrupted things, and you are a crooked person, okay? And so it goes a lot to the Ten Commandments and how you will walk in obedience to them and whether or not you'll say to God, yep, I trust your word, I'm gonna follow that. Humanity is very bent and twisted due to their immorality and their wickedness. And it's why we often mourn in this world how twisted we are. Like, <clears throat> I was shocked. I don't know why I was shocked. But uh, I was listening to an R.C. Sproul video um, about the holiness of God. And this is probably produced in the 1980s. Okay? So for those of you that are born in the 2000s, it's like way, way back. Right? <clears throat> so 1980s, he's, he's talking to people. And he says, hey, listen, there was a guy in Massachusetts, a truck driver, and he gets arrested because he was being a drunkly disorder kind of guy. And so the police go and they arrest him, but this guy was a piece of work. And so I guess this guy just, you know, like went all kinds of ways on him, like telling him off, doing all kinds of stuff. And so by the time that they got him to the charging thing, they were like, hey, listen, we want the book thrown at this guy. This guy deserves everything we can give him for the way that he has just abused us and abused the situation. Like the book needs to go at him. Well, the, the justice that's going to have to like give an order, he's got to be fair. So he's got to only work what the law gives him to work with. And he says, well, unfortunately for this offense, the only thing I can do is give him 30 days and a $100 fine. That's all the law will give me the permission to do. To be a just judge, that's all I can do. And so he started searching. Like, is there any other rules on the books that I can find that this guy broke? Because I want to back up my police officers who are doing a good job and help. And they went all the way back. <clears throat> and they found that if you take the name of the Lord in vain, publicly, that is a 30-day jail sentence and another $100 fine. So now take this in, okay? Because like, I'm just gonna use the initials. OMG gets put out quite a bit, right? This is how our nation started. That, hey, listen, that name was held seriously. Why was that name held seriously? Because our founders founded a lot of our laws based off of Exodus and Leviticus. Like when you go back and you listen to them or read them, you'll be like, holy cow, that sounds a lot like our legal system today. And that's because they were wise and they said, well, let's go back to the creator and figure out how he would justify and do things. And they started following that system. And so we have this law. And what's the third commandment? Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Like they took that seriously. And so they followed that. And so here we are now, like, in that time period, R.C. Sproul said Time Magazine raised issue, raised issue with it. That they went after the judge, like, how could you do this, such an arbitrary thing, like, you know, like, what time period are you living in that you would come off and go after this? But, like, just take it in for a moment, like, 
this is where we were as a nation. Where are we at today? Like, what is the holiness code today? And so this is where, like, as you go back and listen to Leviticus and read, and you start saying in your mind, okay, hey, this is how God wants us to act morally. This is who our God is. It then helps start for the Christian, start to clarify, like, oh, this is what my life should look like. Pastor Dave is about to help us see that more and more in the book of Ephesians. Because in the New Testament, our God hasn't changed. Same God of the Old Testament, the same God of the New. And in the New Testament, he's telling people, hey, listen, your lives should look differently than the world around you. You should be holy as your God is holy. And so we have iniquity. We have transgression, the idea of rebelling or trespassing or betraying a relationship. Right? And this is, again, dealing with intimacy. So yesterday, we're out on the <coughs> courts, and I'm talking with one of the parents. And one of the kids has had an incident with their sibling. Right? And so the other kid is hurt, upset, and, and you know, just needs some time with mom or dad. Right? Why? Because there has been transgression done. Somebody that was near and dear to them has hurt them has offended them, has betrayed them in a way that they thought like, hey, this wouldn't happen. How could you do that to me? That's why in marriages, right? The person that can hurt you, hurt you the worst, your spouse, right? They look at you one way, they say something, like that one hurts the worst, right? The next one is your kids, right? My kids got on me last Sunday about my sermon. And like, it's like, ooh, that stings a little bit, right? They said it in love, so I took it in a good way. But in a moment, it was like, ooh, yep. <clears throat> Took me like a whole hour to get to my point one, number one. So it was like, yep, <clears throat> got it, right? Let's, let's get there faster. Um, but like, again, those familiar relationships, they, they hurt. And God says, you are my child, right? You are my family. And so when we reject him, when we go against him, like there's a transgression that is a deep hurt and offense. And then sin, the most common um, category of disobedience that we have towards God, the idea of failing or missing the mark, missing the goal. That there's been a standard set and we have fallen short of that standard. <clears throat> Romans uh, 7, Paul says that, hey, not only have we fallen short of that standard, but we are enslaved to sin and it keeps us falling short of that standard. In uh, Genesis 3 and 4, we see sin. And, and sin um, in Genesis 4 is defined kind of as a beast, like a, a lion crouching, seeking to devour us. Like, dear church, this is why we need to pray for each other. Because sin is seeking to devour each other. This is why we need to be connected. This is why connection groups are of so much value. This is why we need to get together and talk with each other. Amen. Be yeah, amen, there we go. <clears throat> because we need each other in our lives to guard us, to help us, to point out to us our sin at times when we've gotten off track and to be able to say, oh, there it is. 
that's the thing that I need to deal with. Can you pray with me and help me now to take the step I need to take so that I would be right with God? So then God gives us a good word of encouragement. In Psalm 35, David says, I declared, I acknowledged my sin to my God, to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Praise God that our God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And because of these characteristics, he is a God who will forgive all of our sin, all of our transgression, all of our iniquity. Why? Because Jesus Christ has come and has paid the penalty for our sin. He has provided a way. That right there, that's worth an amen. 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 So our God is one who will forgive. And yet the next statement is one that really like should smack in the face. That he is a God who will not not clear the guilty by no means. He says he is a God who will be just and he will bring judgment upon those who do not seek his forgiveness. Now, why is that? Why is it, hey, if you can forgive all this, if Jesus Christ died, why is it that there still has to be a judgment and there has to be a just punishment for those who are not found in Christ? It goes to his holiness. His holiness demands this. This is why, church, we have to know who our God is. Because our God is a God of love. we got to know that. But our God is a God of holiness and justice. And he will bring judgment upon those who will not seek his forgiveness. He will bring judgment on those who reject him, who have pushed him away. And so we need to go out into the world and let them know, hey, listen, today, today is the day of salvation. Turn from your sin, seek the Lord, he will hear you, he will have mercy on you. Why? Because his word has said it. His character has proven it. He is worthy to be followed. So repent today, turn from your sin, and go and walk in obedience. If you don't, Moses and the Israelites then say, you're being stiff-necked. You're being hard-hearted. Your pride is getting in the way and you're trying to raise your head above the waters, right? And this is going to get you in trouble because your iniquity, your transgression, your sin is going to compile on you and it's going to continue to bury you alive while you're in this world. And then at some point you will be brought to judgment before the throne of God and you have to give an account for all your sin. Now, some of you today need to understand this. Some of you are playing with fire, and the fire is the eternal hell. Because you are caught in sin, and you are not yet humbling yourself before the Lord to repent of your sin. Some of you are just oblivious to what your sin is. And here's what I'm telling you. Like, you need to go and talk to brothers and sisters here, or people that you know, and say, help me understand what is going on here. Because we've had people that we've prayed for and God has opened their eyes so that they could then know their God, find their peace, find their hope, 
and find their salvation. Church, we need to be careful because he says that this sin carries on to the third and the fourth generation. There's an idea of generational sin that takes place. That when we live a certain way in front of our families, that that impact will be carried out if nobody steps in and says, nope, I am not going to let this sin rule in our family anymore. I'm not going to let us keep going this direction. I'm going to stand in the gap and trust that God will help me to show, hey, this is not how we should live. This attitude is not a godly attitude. These words are not godly words. These ways of doing life, they're not glorifying to the Lord. They're not holy. So we are not going to keep going in these ways. And so God, help us to not be stiff-necked. Help us not to continue to walk in these ways. Listen carefully to Joel 2. This is what I'm going to close with. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Today, if you find yourself stiff-necked, proud, caught, God says, today, repent, humble yourself. Don't try to do penance. Don't try to do something to earn God's favor. He says, just repent. Turn to me and I will forgive you and heal you. Let me pray for us. God Almighty, we come before you because you are our God and you tell us to call out to you. And so God, today I'm calling out to you on behalf of your people here at Valley Center Community Church. God, would you continually help us, God, to confess freely to you our sin. God, would you help us to trust that you will work through our brothers and sisters in our lives so that we don't get caught in sin. May we not pass on sin to the next generation, but God, may you be there to save them and to draw them further in their relationship with you. And may we find joy. May we find peace. May we find hope. May we see the great goodness of our God. In Jesus' name, amen.